And now if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn for the last time in our evening series to the book of Colossians. This evening we will be looking at Colossians chapter 4 from verse 2 down through the end of the chapter, completing our journey with Paul and his letter to that dear small church at Colossae. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray for God's blessing upon His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use these encouragements from Paul to encourage us, to focus our lives, to show us what you would have us to do. This we ask, O Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've reached the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians. It is a letter that has been filled with great truths about God, about salvation, about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is a letter that has given great and infallible wisdom about how to relate husbands to wives, parents to children, workers and bosses. And yet now here at the end, Paul is going to give us one last piece of practical encouragement. Paul was not merely one to teach. He was one also to motivate and to encourage his people to be about the work that the Lord had given to them. And as I look at the end of this book, at this last chapter, I'm struck by how often here Paul is teaching us how we are to speak and the ways in which we are to use our words and our mouths in the world. And so what I would like us to see is three things that Paul describes for us in using our speech. First, we are to speak for people. And we'll see how Paul does that as he leads us in thinking about prayer. And then second, he tells us how we are to speak to people, to bring people the good news of the gospel. And then lastly, he tells us how we are to speak about people, how we can be encouragers to others who are around us, speaking for people, speaking to people, and speaking about people. Let's begin then by looking at the onset of our passage. Paul begins with an encouragement and a command, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, We have gone through this book, and if you have read any of Paul's other letters, you know that this is a characteristic of who Paul is. He is constantly telling us that we need to go before the throne of God, describing how he remembers others in his prayers always, and how he is so desirous of the prayers of the saints for his work. But we cannot forget that this is not a characteristic just of Paul, just of apostles, just of Bible writers. This is a characteristic of believers, of ordinary people like you and me. The beginning of the book of Acts makes this clear. This church was devoted to. In Acts 1, we find the church gathered together. And in verse 14, it says, all of those with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary and his brothers. And again in Acts 2, we see that they were devoting themselves to not only the apostles' teaching and fellowship, but also to prayer. You may recall that the office of deacon exists because the elders said, we don't have enough time to devote ourselves to prayer. So elect among you men who are spiritual and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So Paul says that this is something that we should be focused upon. And he tells us to continue steadfastly in this. Continuing steadfastly is, I think, a good short definition of the word perseverance. We've all heard that word, right? It's the P in tulip. But what does it mean? What does it mean to persevere in something? I think the best illustration that I could give is found in the Bible itself, in Luke chapter 18. You remember that widow who would not give up? She went to the judge, and he would not answer her, and she went again, 
And he would not answer and she went again. And finally the judge threw up his hands and he said, if I'm ever going to be rid of this lady, I have to answer her prayers. I have to answer her requests. Now, God is not frustrated with our prayers, but I think that's a good picture of how we are to pray, persevering, day upon day, hour upon hour, week upon week. Because you see, the Lord is desirous of communing with us. And our prayers are a way of building our relationship up with the Lord. And if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to grow sleepy, don't we? Have you ever wondered why the phrase, watch and pray, occurs so often in the Bible? Paul uses it even here. He says, be in prayer and be watchful in it. And it's because because prayer doesn't often have an instant bang response. Prayer often doesn't seem to be an activity that we need to do right that second to get something accomplished. That It can go to the back burner. It can be something that we forget, something that we take for granted. But it is an everyday habit that is needed. And then Paul characteristically talks about prayer and thanksgiving here in verse 2. And this is also characteristic of Paul. This is the fourth time in this letter that he tells us to be thankful and to give thanksgiving. We see it in chapter 1 and verse 2, chapter 2 and verse 7, chapter 3 and verse 17, over and over again. But it's not just here. 37 times in his letters, Paul gives us directive to give thanks or to be thankful or to have thanksgiving. In his larger letters, he does it an average of about seven times. In the shorter letters, like Colossians, about three. But you see, this is something that is constantly on his mind. And I think the reason that it is, is Paul understands that it is the companion to persevering prayer. It is hard to continue in prayer unless we are aware of and reminded of all of the things that we have to be thankful for. We can get frustrated with asking the Lord for deliverance if we don't remember how He has delivered us. And so Paul says we must unite these things together. You must comb the recesses of your mind. Flip back through your day planners. Go back through your Google calendar and see all of the things that you have prayed for. All of the opportunities that the Lord has manifested Himself in your life. Do what the old hymn says. Count your blessings, one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. You see, this is a motivation to persevering in prayer. And then the third thing that Paul does with respect to prayer is he asks for specific prayers for himself. So not only is prayer persevering, not only does prayer involve praise, but there is a specific need of prayer for preaching. Look at what Paul says. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now I want you to think for a moment about the circumstances here. Paul asks specifically for prayer. And what does he pray for? Does he pray for his, does he ask for prayer for his health, which is not good? No. Does he ask for prayer for his release from prison and difficult circumstances? No, he doesn't. He asks specifically for prayers for his preaching. 
Because you see, Paul does not ask for what he does not know. He knows God has brought this about, has put him in prison at this time in his divine purpose, and he doesn't want to go ahead of God. He doesn't want to lose opportunities for the gospel. But he does know that he has to ask for prayer for what God has commanded. Because God has commanded him to preach the gospel. Has commanded him to be clear in his speech. Now, can you imagine that? This is Paul. Paul, the student of Gamaliel. Paul, the Pharisee. Paul, the evangelist and missionary. Paul, the apostle, the writer of the Bible. And he says, please pray for me that people will understand when I preach. If I may be so bold, if the Apostle Paul can ask for prayer for that, I want you all on your knees every day for me. Because you see, preaching the gospel of God's word is not only a difficult task, it is a momentous task. It is conveying divine truth in real words. And so it is interesting that this is the very first thing that Paul asks specifically for prayer for. Because you see, the truth of God's word does come indeed from man. And the Colossians can understand this because they were the recipients of the word preached. They were the ones who had their lives changed. And so Paul calls us to be in prayer specifically. The second thing that Paul does is he then moves from his own evangelistic means, his own preaching, to that of the people. In verse 5, he says, Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so what Paul does here is, he encourages the people to spread the message, the good news of the gospel. Now, I want you to notice what he does not do. He does not tell them that they need to be preaching. That is a specific office that requires specific training. But you'll notice that that is not the only means of conveying God's truth. You do not fulfill your duty of being an ambassador of Jesus Christ merely by saying, come listen to our preacher. You see, you have your own duty to convey God's truth within your own sphere of influence and relationships. And Paul here is encouraging you to do it. And the great thing is, Paul says that this is not something that you need to have a masterful technique to do. This is not something you need to feel pressured to do. He actually says God will bring opportunities to you and he commands you to seize those opportunities. You see, speaking to people must first be timely. You have to have an opening. And as Paul has described before, it starts with our lives. You see, he starts this passage on outreach and evangelism by saying, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. The very first words you speak come with your life. Your walk is how you live. And I want you to notice here that he tells us to live our lives with a specific bent toward outsiders. That they would be able to judge our lives. One of the great challenges in America today is we have the temptation as Christians to live as if we were in a ghetto. 
We, ha- we have our conduct. We only want our conduct to be judged by other believers. We don't wonder or don't worry if others, our neighbors, friends, and family members who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ think we are rude or brusque or standoffish. Now, I'm not talking here about moral behavior because moral behavior following God's law applies no matter who we're around. But the way we relate to others around us. If I could be so bold, Paul is telling you today that you ought to care what unbelievers think about you. And that, friends, should affect how we live tomorrow. When we go to work. When we go to the restaurant. When we go to school. We ought to have some concern how others think about our lives because that gives us the opportunity we need to speak words of life into their lives. And if we conduct ourselves wisely, then we can, as Paul says, make the best use of the time that God has given to us. Now there is good news here in evangelism that direct evangelism is not for everyone. Not everyone here can memorize ten scriptures and walk up and cold call someone and ask them what they think about Jesus. But responsive evangelism is for everyone. Peter says we are to be always ready to give what? An answer to those who ask us about the hope that is in us. Even the young people. You don't have to have memorized an evangelistic program But when your friend walks up to you and says, well, why do you go to church? Why do you take time to read your Bible? Why are you talking about this mission trip? Why would you spend part of summer doing that? That's an opportunity to respond about what the Lord has done in your life. That's not an option. That's a command here from the Lord. We do it as we are able with the relationships we have already built up, praying that the Lord has used our walk and our wisdom that goes before us to provide opportunities to respond and give an answer for the hope that is in us. We must accept the openings that come to us. You see, I think sometimes we think if all we want to do is respond to others, that's not really being evangelistic. We need to be on the initiative We need to be knocking on every door. We need to be handing out tracts in restaurants. Now, there are some who have that gifting and that calling, but if we're honest, not all of us do. But responsive evangelism as an opportunity and a command will come at you more often than you think because you see everywhere around you there are people asking questions about the purpose and meaning of life. Now, they may not form it in the form of a philosophical inquiry. It may be something like, I'm worried about the future of our country. I don't know if I'll have a job after I graduate from college. I don't know what my house is going to be worth next year. My father's sick. I don't know what will happen. And these are opportunities that we can latch on to, that are divine appointments that the Lord has put in front of us to speak to others We have to take these opportunities. And as we take them, it removes the strain of evangelism from us. And it makes our excuses go away. 
Oh, I couldn't do that. I, I, just, I couldn't possibly memorize all the things that need to be memorized. That's too difficult for me. Well, can you give an answer for the hope that's within you? Can you talk to your neighbors across the fence? Can you talk to your friends while you're shooting hoops? Any of these things you can do as the Lord gives you His grace. And the irony here is, as we look at evangelism in this fashion, it makes us more dependent upon the Lord. Because we are not the ones seeking to shoehorn evangelistic opportunities. But we are always on the lookout for divine appointments. And I challenge you that you will find yourself sharing the gospel more in that context than in planned context. But we also need to remember that as we share the gospel, it not only is a timely thing, it not only is something that we must take the opportunities to seize, but we must be tempered in the way that we do this. Paul says that we are to to speak to others, let our speech always be great. Speaking to others about the Lord Jesus Christ is not about winning. It is not about proving them wrong. It is not about a notch in the belt. It is not about provoking arguments. It is not about going down rabbit trails simply because we've just read an article on some esoteric area. No, being gracious is having God's focus. Meeting people where they are and putting both the challenges and the demands of the gospel in front of them. And and lest we think that we are not called to challenge others in a gracious way, Paul adds a bit of an interesting statement. He says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, what do you think this means, seasoned with salt? Do you think he wants you to take a salt shaker on with you and put it on your tongue? One of my favorite shows on television that we watch because it's interesting and family-friendly is a show called Restaurant Impossible where a chef goes in and he teaches a failing restaurant how not to fail, how to succeed. And usually the cooking is bad and the service is bad and it's an ugly restaurant. And they come in and they fix it. And inevitably, almost every time he goes in, he tastes the food and he says, do you even know what salt and pepper is? And he puts salt and he puts pepper on it and he has them taste it. And they say, wow, this tastes a lot better. And it's, well, of course it does. There's a reason why people salt things. It makes it more desirable. It's very simple, isn't it? But it has an effect. And you see, that's what we are to do in our speech. It's to be seasoned. It's not to be bland, full of cliches. As we speak to others about the Lord Jesus Christ, we should not sound like a tract from 1982. We should speak of the excitement about Jesus in our lives and what He is doing and what He has promised and how the Bible is helpful and how Jesus could change their lives too and how it can have an impact in their communities and in their families. We should be excited about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what salt is in this context. If I can put it this way, and you'll forgive me, it's pizzazz. It's something that makes people take an interest and actually want to talk with us about eternal things. It's not dull. It's not rote. It's speaking in a way 
that is designed to be heard. And if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes evangelism and outreach can be something like, I know I have to do this. I know I have to get this out. I know they have to listen, and they're probably going to walk away. When instead we should see this as an opportunity to change people's lives by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. A divine appointment to have an impact in their lives. Well, Paul tells us to speak for people and to speak to people, but he also gives us an example here in the end about how to speak about people. And he has this long dialogue that begins here at verse 7. It's actually the longest in all of his letters, except for the epistle to the Romans. And it tells us something that seems so simple, but is important. Paul the theologian, Paul the missionary, Paul the church planter, Paul the Bible writer, actually cared about people. Real people with real names and real troubles. You see, this is not just a general statement. He is talking specifically about people. He knows their names. You know, oftentimes, I will be speaking with someone and they will talk about someone they have met. And it may be a person of great accomplishments or great wealth or or great fame. And oftentimes, the thing that is most impressive is not all of the uh, achievements, not all of the things, but they will look and they will say, they remembered my name. I met them a few months before and they actually remembered my name. There's great power in that. Do you seize upon that for the Lord? You can be an encouragement to visitors by remembering their name. You can be an encouragement to your neighbors by remembering their children's names. Encouragement to your children's friends by remembering their names. It seems so small. But you see, it's symptomatic, it's emblematic of something far more important that we are taking an interest in them. Paul then begins to speak about these people. Tychicus, a man we would not even know about except that Paul speaks of him. But he is called a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? Do you look forward to meeting Tychicus in heaven? Finding out what his ministry was and how he helped Paul. I dare say... We could find out ways in which he gave good godly advice to Paul, that he helped Paul. Just because he's not as famous doesn't mean he's not as important in the kingdom of God. And then, of course, there's this other name that's just thrown in here, Onesimus. Yeah, greet him. He's our faithful and beloved brother. He's one of you. Stop. Onesimus is a slave. A man owned by a wealthy man in this church. And Paul says, he is one of you. Do you see the care in there? The whole book of Philemon times ten is encapsulated in that sentence. And then, of course, there's another name that's given. Demas. Greet him, he says. 
But Demas is a name that is sad at verse 14. For you see, Demas was a fellow laborer with the Lord, or with Paul for the Lord. But the last time we read of Demas, in Paul's letter to Timothy, we read that he's abandoned the faith, that he's abandoned his Lord, abandoned his calling, abandoned life. Paul then also speaks words of encouragement to us about these people. He's not afraid to share his ministry with others like Aristarchus or like Jesus called Justice or Epaphras. All of these men who are co-laborers with him. And then, can you imagine what this would be like? It's almost a throwaway here at the end of this book. But he says, oh yes, and also greet Mark and the beloved physician Luke. Now think about that. Paul sat around and had coffee with the writers of two of the Gospels. Would you like to have just sat at that table and listened? Can you imagine what that would be like? To have Mark and Luke there? And Paul? But you see, Paul treats it as if they are all on the same team, all in the same field, working together for one goal. He's encouraging them and us through them. The last thing that Paul tells us as we speak about others or speak to others is not only to have words of encouragement, but also words of purpose. You notice how he ends here. He says, this letter in verse 16 has been read in the church of the Laodiceans. See that you read also the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. You see, he has a concern for this congregation. He has a concern for the church. He wants them to keep on. Verse 17 tells us, he says, never let up. The Christian life is a life that should be lived with your foot on the gas. Do not let up. There's only so much time God has given to you. And Paul says, go on, push on. See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received. And then in verse 18, he has this last small request. Remember my chains. I think that's also an encouragement to us. Because not only are we never to let up, we are never to give up. Paul is bound in chains. And yet he is still being powerfully used for the gospel. Do you have shortcomings in your own life? Perhaps you have an illness that holds you down. Perhaps there's a sadness that holds you down. Perhaps there are challenges that you think you cannot overcome. The Apostle Paul tells you to never give up. Remember his chains. Remember how God used him in spite of them. This is a challenge from the Apostle Paul. He wants us to be fruitful, faithful Christians. And that involves being given to prayer, speaking for people. It involves telling the words of life to others around us, speaking the gospel to them. And it involves encouraging others around us, speaking about them in tones to build them up to work for the kingdom. This is good practical advice for a small 
little church in a place called Colossae. But it's advice that can be used here at this church in our corner of the world, in Katy, Texas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken through your Apostle Paul. And Lord, we ask this evening that you would equip us, that you would give us tongues that desire to speak to you, to offer up specific prayers, prayers of encouragement and of help. And that you would, O Lord, equip us to speak to others, to tell others of the greatness of you and of your deeds. And finally, Lord, we ask that you would use us to encourage those around us, to lift them up, to show to them that they are important, to tell them and ourselves that we are never to let up and never to give up. For you, O Lord, have the power and the might and the glory. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.